If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson comes from the book of Ezra, chapters 1, 3, and 10. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict declared. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. When the seventh month came and the Israelites were in the towns, the people gathered together in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Zodadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his kin, set out to build the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation because they were in dread of the neighboring peoples. And they offered burnt offerings upon it to the Lord morning and evening. And they kept the festival of booths as prescribed and offered in the, the daily burnt they set up, they kept the festival of booths as prescribed and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the ordinances required for each day. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the peoples responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations wept with a loud voice when they saw this house though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. Here ends the reading from our tradition. 
May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Well, based on just the last week, this is not the year Mayflower Church stops making suggestions to the preacher about how the sermon should go. <laughs> nope, not that year. Y'all. So many suggestions. Some gentle recommendations. Several, a lot, a lot of pointed opinions. None of which agreed with each other but all of which were written with obvious commitment to and care for this beloved community. And that's enough to make a preacher's heart burst. So keep them coming. You should know that while preachers usually have an idea about themes and such when we start writing, it is rare for a sermon to end up where we thought it would and this is true no matter how many times we've studied the text, what we think we know about it, or whether we've preached on it before, because, because we are, as Marcus Borg says, week after week, trying to read the Bible again for the first time, while also tending to the headlines in the newspaper and to the hearts of the people we minister alongside. Plus, there's that unruly and untamed Holy Spirit. And preachers are always listening for her, never quite sure the path we're headed down, but trusting that she'll lead us where we need to go. Every once in a while, though, it's not the ending that surprises the preacher, but the beginning, which is what happened this week. The text puts us in the geographical area of modern-day Baghdad, Iraq, controlled by a ruler from what was, roughly speaking, ancient Iran. For real, that's where the text puts us, Iraq and Iran. Great, but since this is where the text at least begins, a word on assassinations, retribution, and the possibility of war. I'm not here to tell you what a cluster of awfulness and ineptitude the administration's handling of the Middle East is. I'll leave that to my girl, Rachel Maddow. <laughs> I'm not a cable news commentator. I'm a preacher whose job it is to get this beloved community thinking about a faithful response to this chaos, which is not the same as what any of us are hearing from pundits on the left or the right. And we desperately need a faithful response to this chaos. No matter how long the news cycle says an issue is an issue, as people of faith, our attention span must be longer. Politics is about the shape and shaping of the city, and by extension of large-scale human communities, kingdoms, nations, empires, the world, so in this sense, politics matter greatly. It is about the structure of society, who rules, in whose benefit. To abandon politics means leaving the structuring of society to those who are most concerned by their own interests. It means letting the pharaohs and monarchs and Caesars and domination systems, ancient and modern, put the world together as they will. 
As people of faith, we are called to pay attention and then take political action to make the world a more just and peaceful place according to the teachings of Jesus. Radical hospitality, resistance to empire, and the belief that all of us need all of us to make it. So if we want to make any kind of contribution to ending the cycle of violence and terror the world currently suffers from, it must be more than a regurgitation of the talking heads. When we insist that presidents must have specific authorization for the use of military force, it cannot depend on party membership of the particular president in office. During President Obama's eight years in office, he never received his own congressional authorization for military operations he launched in Libya, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, and Pakistan. Targeted killings, also known as assassinations, steadily increased from 2008 to 2016. In eight, in eight years, the Obama administration ordered more than 500 drone strikes that killed thousands of people including civilians. The legal justification for these killings came from the previous administration, from congressional authorization given to President George W. Bush in 2001, and we are still on that merry-go-round. For war begets war, begets war, begets war. And our stance, when eventually there is a new administration in the Oval Office. Our stance should be to stop the madness, for there is no such thing as peace through violence. There is no such thing as peace through violence. Which brings us back to this morning's text, where we find a new emperor, Cyrus, king of Persia, which was, as I noted earlier, roughly speaking, ancient Iran. Cyrus arrived as conqueror, but with a slightly different approach to running an empire. While the Babylonians, who had been in charge, dominated other nation states through violence and exile, Cyrus and the Persians conquered, but gave significant freedom to the people they ruled. It would, of course, um, be a mistake to label him a nice dictator because a dictator is still a dictator. But Cyrus did understand that more violence would only incite insurrections and rebellions. So while he, of course, required an annual tribute, he otherwise gave fairly wide latitude to conquered people. Cyrus went as far as to give exiled Israelites permission to return home and to rebuild the temple. That's the part we read from chapter 1. He not only sent them to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of the Lord, he returned some of the treasures that had been stolen from the Israelites by Nebuchadnezzar and encouraged the Israelites' neighbors to send them off with farewell gifts. This is likely why Cyrus is the only foreigner in all of Scripture to be called Messiah, anointed one, so if you would like to blow the mind of the nearest fundamentalist, tell them that someone other than Jesus is referred to as God's anointed one. And you can tell them where to find it in scripture, Isaiah 45, verse 1. The second chapter of Ezra 
is a list of descendants who made the trip back, which obviously would have been a complete delight to read aloud, but Joan would only agree to be my worship leader if I promised not to make her read a list of begats, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. So we fast forward a chapter to chapter three where the people have gathered in Jerusalem. After returning home, the first thing they do is built an altar to the Lord so that proper worship, according to their tradition, can begin as soon as possible. The altar is built, and then in the six verses not included in this morning's readings, the Levites are appointed to supervise the rebuilding of the temple itself, work beautifully described in Ezra 3.8. After their arrival at the house of God at Jerusalem, they made a beginning. They made a beginning out of what was and what was to come. They had made that beginning, and when they were close enough, we read about a glittering festival, priests arrayed in their finest vestments, shiny trumpets blaring, Levites with clanging cymbals, and a mass choir singing, glory hallelujah. As builders laid the foundation, the people raised a great and joyful shout. It was deep and real rejoicing. But along with this rejoicing, another sound, a mournful wail from those who had seen the first temple on its foundations, who remembered what it used to look like. And there was weeping for what was lost, for what once was, grief for the pain of what had been, also deep and real heartache. To say there were conflicting emotions is an understatement. It was as if half the people were attending a celebration with all the trappings of an Elton John concert, and the other half were at a graveside funeral during a rainstorm. And I think there is an instinct to shush one of these groups, to tell either the fancy Nancy party pants to take it down a notch and have some respect, or to tell the Debbie Downers to buck up Buttercup, or maybe to tell all of them to put a cork in it, all of the shouting, all of the weeping, all of the yelling, all of the crying, all at once, at any moment, I imagine Ezra throwing up his hands and saying, so help me God, I will pull this car over right now. <laughs> but none of that happens. No one is shushed. The text doesn't condemn anyone, not for their grief not for their hope. In a moment of sheer humanity, scripture names a deep truth, that the sound of the people's joyful shout could not be distinguished from the sound of the people's weeping. The sound of joy and the sound of weeping could not be separated one from another. It happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, it is, it is the sum of parenting, your heart walking around outside your body, 
The joy of watching those little feet take their first steps, stumbling towards your open arms, and the clapping celebration, you did it, you did it. And at the same time, that heart-clenching realization that this first step is the beginning of separation, of them not needing you in the same ways. How is this happening so fast? They can't be walking, they just started to crawl. And then without warning, they are throwing their graduation cap up in the air. And even though we are so proud of how they are making their way in the world, family dinners are so few and far between. They could not distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of weeping. It is like the hard and holy work of caring for an aging parent. On the one hand, to be so grateful for the opportunity to return the love and affection that once flowed in the opposite direction, parent to child, now child to parent. And on the other hand, the grief of such role reversal. The heartache and the frustration, I mean, parents do not listen or take advice. And sometimes they just don't act right even though you know what's best for them. How is it possible to love someone so much and want to wring their necks at the same time? They could not distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of weeping. This too is what happens when we remember someone's life after their death. This is the work of honoring someone in all of their magnificent imperfection. They could not distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of weeping is why when we remember a person, we do so in fullness. We sing praises for the good they have done, for even the smallest acts of kindness matter. But we also acknowledge where they have fallen short, for we have all fallen short. To note someone's goodness does not diminish what they did wrong. To recognize their shortcomings does not lessen their light. So we put it all out there to lament and to celebrate. They could not distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of weeping. These are the sounds of life, sorrow woven together with joy, grief that walks alongside hope, pain that sits in the same pew as love. Rarely do any of us exist fully in one state or the other. The sounds of our joyful shouts can never be easily distinguished from the sound of our weeping. So let us not shush each other. Let us handle each other with care. And let us listen for that unruly and untamed spirit, never sure of the path, but ever trusting. She'll lead us where we need to go. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Waukee, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. 
More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.